y'all, it's Betsy with the Dickey Foundation, and you're listening to Dickey's Doing Good, the podcast where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in the community. I'm thrilled because my guest today is Detective Dan Russell. He has been a detective for a couple of years, and he's been with the Dallas Police Department for more than 13 years. He is with the Fugitive Unit for the Dallas Police Department and also instructs the active bystander for law enforcement and other trainings for UNT Dallas's Carruth Police Institute. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Well, wonderful. So for those folks who don't know you quite as well as I do, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your law enforcement career, and how you came to be where you are now. Uh, well, good morning. Thank you for, for having me here. Um, my first podcast, so stick with me if I get any of this uh, silliness wrong. Um, okay, so I'm 35. I've been a police officer almost 15 years between Dallas and uh, a sheriff's department that I worked at in Washington State. I'm originally from Washington State. Um, I grew up in the little town of Snohomish. And um, I went to school at Central Washington University. And when I was in school there, um, I originally wanted to be a teacher. And I realized that I did not like teaching kids. Um, so, you know, that caused a little bit of a paradigm shift. And so I was kind of a, a man on search for a mission. Um, I had initially really wanted to, to join the military growing up and that did not work out for me uh, medically. I was medically rejected. So, okay, can't join the military, can't do teaching, uh, don't want to do teaching. Um, hey, what's this, this law and justice program? So my college, they had a combined program called law and justice. So you could go and it was like both pre-law and criminal justice. And I was thinking of going the attorney route. And my first class, um, we had a extra credit deal where, hey, if you go, well, it's like, we'll set you up and go do a ride along with Ellensburg Police Department. And Ellensburg is a really small little, it's a little college town and you know, rural, like less than 10,000 people. And so I set up to go do a ride along and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go ride for like, like four hours, whatever, I'm just gonna get my little extra credit. I wasn't really interested in being a cop. Um, like I had read a book growing up that had maybe interested in law enforcement and really want to do it. Um, there was a, uh, my family was a victim of crime uh, when I was 16 and we had a, got a really bad taste in our mouth from the way the sheriff's department where I grew up treated us. Um, I, like my, my dad was shot in a robbery mm. and um, the suspect was never apprehended. We were kind of treated like, just be glad he didn't die. And if he had died, we would take it more seriously. Um, so I didn't want to be caught. I wasn't interested in it. And I went and I sat down in the squad car and, uh, the guy driving, his name was Nelson Ning. Um, and he was a police officer, promoted sergeant later. And so I sat in a squad car and I'm there for about 25 minutes and I go, oh crap, I'm hooked. This is it. <laughs> this is what I'm All it takes do. is 25 minutes. It was and about 25 minutes and he's just driving around this little country town that I'm going to college in. I had already been there, um, two years, you know, I knew all the streets and, you know, and, and then he's showing me sides of town that, um, like there's a part of an Ellsberg called Dogtown, Right. And so, um, uh, my friend Teresa listening to this, she goes, it's canine Heights, not Dogtown, <laughs> Um, right. So I'm thinking it's this little college town and he's showing me around places. I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know there's crime there. Oh, there's a dope house there. Oh, this is a little college town. What do you mean there? There's not drugs in Ellsberg. 25 minutes. I'm hooked. Um, so I, I you know, I kind of, I changed trajectories. I kept going in the law and justice program and I decided to, to kind of get a jump start on it. And uh, so I, I went to the police academy when I was 20 um, up there and I was doing that and I was still going to school full time and I became a, uh, a sheriff's deputy for Kidgas County. Um, and while all this is going on, I am dating my now wife. So my wife is from Texas. 
Um, she grew up in Houston, was going to college in Austin, and we're long distance. We had met at a party between freshman and sophomore year. Um, and so we're doing a long distance thing. We're talking on the phone. This is during the, the age of phone cards, right? So we're <laughs> spending stupid amounts of money on phone cards. We're MySpace friends. Let me tell you, there was a scandal when she slid into my top eight oh. in MySpace, right? Yeah. <laughs> MySpace. And I haven't heard that in years. I, it was, we would not be together if it weren't for MySpace. So Tom, if you're out there, thank you very much for creating MySpace. I'm sorry we all left you. Facebook sucks. Um, we, so if we were going to do this thing, my wife and I were actually like, have a go at making this relationship real more than just phone cards and telephone calls. Somebody had to move and uh, I had a transferable skill set. So I started looking for jobs in Texas, came down here in 2008 and uh, I've been here since. You know, Dallas has been good to me. Um, it, staying at Dallas was not always the plan, right? It was like, I'm going to do a couple years. I'm going to go to a smaller agency or I'm going to do a couple years and then I'm going to go to law school finally or, you know, it, none, none of that happened. Um, you know, life has a, a crazy way of showing you where you actually belong, where you need to be. And I am exactly where I need to be. So, um, yeah, been with Dallas for uh, over 13 years now. Well, and you're with the uh, Fugitive, Fugitive Unit. Tell me about your work there and what you all do. So, I mean, we've all seen the movie The Fugitive, and it sounds really cool to be part of the Fugitive Unit, but tell us about it. Right, right. So uh, I have not gone after Harrison Ford, and <laughs> I have not been involved in any one-armed man did it stories. Um, so the fugitive, like the movie is about the U S marshals and we do have a U.S. marshals task force. Um, that is not what I do. Uh, so Dallas PD fugitive unit, we got established in 20, um, 2017, I think is when they officially formalized this version of the unit, but the roots of the unit kind of started in like 2012 with, uh, uh, operation Metro and Metro is an acronym. It's a marked enforcement targeting repeat offenders. So it started with this huge task force under chief Brown. And it dwindled, 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 and we're down to um, just a couple of dozen officers. And so when I came to Fugitive Unit in 2019, I think there were, I think about 25 of us. And uh, so our job, uh, we are um, almost always playing clothes at the time I came over. Now we are down to 13 people. And we are all playing clothes, we have no uniform component. And so our job is to locate and safely apprehend uh, wanted violent felons. So we work capital murder, murder, sexual assault, aggravated robbery, aggravated assault, kidnapping, child sex assault. Uh, we don't do much in the way of drugs. Um, their drugs are often involved in the crimes for which the, we are searching for people to try to apprehend them, but we don't serve many drug warrants. That's really not our, not our daily. We really focus on violent crimes against persons. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a good week when you get your guy, there are, suspects that you can go after where, uh, you know, I've gotten them in an afternoon, right? Somebody emails out the warrant and says, Hey, I need somebody to go pick this guy up. Here's a little bit of information for him. I get the warrant at 11 AM and they're in jail by two. A lot more frequently it's multi-week, multi-month investigations to get them. If we even can, um, uh, we arrested a gentleman on Monday that I had been working for over a month and it just, it just takes, it takes time, um, it takes patience and, you know, like the movie The Fugitive makes it sound really exciting. It's really cool. <laughs> there definitely are days that I've sat there and stared at a door for eight hours, and then there, uh, when nothing's happened, and then there are days where you're you're blowing and going. You're all across the city. You're following somebody. You get them. As soon as you get to jail, you got to follow somebody else. You get them. Um, so it is it is very rewarding. Um, the the iron the only irony is that every time that you get somebody, you're like, yeah, this is the worst of the worst. Like we got them on the streets. Streets are safer. Your email dings like, oh hey. There's the next one. There's another one. All right, let's let's start all over. Let's start the process all over again. Let's let's go get the next one. <laughs> um, 
but it, it's good. It's it's a it's a fun unit. It's a good place to work. Um, I think it's the type of career aspiration a lot of people would have would be to work in a fugitive unit, and I'm uh, very proud to be there. Well, and you were telling me earlier some of the stories and, and whatnot that you all have done. I mean, can can you share a couple of those stories that are particularly memorable for you? Um, sure. So, so I came to the fugitive unit. Um, it's October 2019. It's been almost two years, and I had got been there like a week, right? Like not even a week. So they like there's no formalized training process. It was all on the job training. So I'm riding around with my my uh, my training officer, and they're you know we're, we're still talking about how to do it. I made my first arrest, and it was no big deal. I like called the chick on the phone, and she came out, and um, there was somebody we were after for capital murder. Um, so if you're not from Texas, capital murder is, um, that's, that's the real deal. Like that's as bad as it gets here. So capital murder is a potential death penalty case. And, uh, we, we saw him, he was on, was on foot. Um, he was on foot and he gets into a car following him and we're in covert vehicles and we had a takedown vehicle. Uh, there was four of us in a, uh, in a covert vehicle, a large SUV and we're preparing to take him down like whenever we can. Well, the guy's onto us. Like he realizes being followed. So now we're in this uh, follow situation, making a bunch of turns, acting really crazy. We're in South Oak Cliff in a residential area. The helicopter's overhead, so we know he's being, you know, the helicopter was very obvious. Those aren't subtle. Um, it's, they, they can be, but sometimes they're less subtle than they think they are, right? Like, right, you're the whoop, 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 whoop of the uh, helicopter, and it, it stands out, right? <laughs> um, so, like, they turn a corner, and the guy vanishes, right? And the doors open on the car, and he's gone set the quick perimeter and um, helicopter finds him and he's hiding on top of a roof of a house. I, t- I still don't know how we got there. Um, he was pretty tall, but this is like a full size one story house where you can't just like reach up and grab the roof and hoist yourself up. Maybe that's what he did. I don't actually know. Parkour. I don't think I know. Spider-Man. Know. Spider-Man. Right. Um, so he gets up on top of the roof and now we have uh, what we call a barricaded person because they basically they're not coming down, they're not coming out. So my first week there, we got a BP on the roof and I'm in takedown car. So we're addressing him and there's just kind of this freeze because it's not exactly in standard operating procedure to talk someone down off a roof. That's not really what we plan on doing and it was new. Uh, so I just start talking to the guy and I've, I've worked really hard at my communication skills over the course of my career um, in order to not just do it better, but also teach others how to do it better. And I'm there not even a week, and now I'm the guy doing a face-to-face negotiation with a guy on a roof. Um, and it was a challenge. It was, um, it took, I mean, I don't even know when, it's a couple of hours, it took a couple of hours to get him calmed down, let him grieve a little bit, the fact he's gonna go to jail. You know, you have these, you, you have these kind of moral dilemmas where like, hey, you need to come down, you got a warrant. Like, well, what am I wanted for? And you think something like, okay. I know you're wanted for capital murder. You may not know you're wanted for capital murder, but you know how bad that is. And is it going to make it way worse when I tell you that? But if you lie to these guys, you're done. Like you lie one time and they catch you on it. Your rapport is gone. So you have to tell them the truth when you're negotiating. You can conceal some things, but you have to tell the truth when you're negotiating because you're only as good as your word. And as soon as you break your word, they are not going to listen to you anymore. So I had to tell the guy that he's one of capital murder. He flips out. Um, I don't want to see my girlfriend. I don't want to see my mama. I didn't do anything. Um, he takes his phones out because, uh, you know, phones are evidence nowadays, right? So he takes his phones out. He starts breaking his phones um, in front of us. And everybody is just kind of, they're just kind of frozen. And so 
I'm running with the ball as best I can. I'm the new guy. You know, I only know there's several people in the unit whose name I don't even know, but now I'm the new guy doing this negotiation. And uh, this, uh, the supervisors, they, so when you're trying to bring somebody else in, it's called a third party intermediary, right? But you gotta be really careful of bringing that in because you don't know, okay, I wanna see my mom. Why do you wanna see your mom? Do you wanna see your mom say goodbye? Is it your final goodbye? Because that's not a good thing. We don't want final goodbyes. That's that's not our goal here. Um, and I had supervisors that you know they, they wanted to bring the girlfriend, and you know it. You had to work with it, and we had a happy ending. Got the guy down. Um, it just it just took time. It took time and it took patience. And uh, I, I talk. I teach de-escalation. I teach conflict resolution. Um, I have for for quite a number of years now. And one of the things that I say is there's no such thing as a viral de-escalation video, right? We see viral use of force videos for officers. Um, in the moment, usually an officer under the search of adrenaline, they make a split set, a second decision, um, and you see a snippet of it, you see a clip. And so there's this perception that, um, you know, force, use of force is rampant, especially either controversial use of force or use of force that some people um, aren't a fan of, and then there are those legitimate times where the use of force is not justifiable. And, you know, the, you're not you're an objectively reasonable officer going like, no, that's not copacetic. On the flip side of that coin, every single day across the country, there are successful de-escalation incidents. And I've seen it, um, I grew up near Seattle, and I especially see it in Seattle Times and some of those newspapers from where I'm from, where an officer's involved in a shooting. And after the fact, the news is saying, well, these officers required you know, they had de-escalation training and they don't recognize that what de-escalation takes that sometimes where it's not possible is time. It takes time. There's no such thing as a de-escalation button. You don't come out of the class and say, I am a de-escalation guru because I learned how to do this and I'm going to hit this button whenever people are mad at me. Um, it takes time. It takes resources. It takes patience. You yourself as the officer have to be in a place of calm in order to do this. Um, and work through this process. And then any any outside influences, um, you know, if the if the person they're trying to escalate is intoxicated, right? You know, either high on drugs or alcohol, if they are mentally ill, right? So you're not just talking to them, but they also have uh, potential auditory hallucinations, voices telling them to do certain things. And none of that is to malign or stigmatize anybody with a mental illness. I'm saying that this is this is the reality on the ground. Well, right? it, change, it changes what an officer is, is expecting. If it's someone who, you know, they're stone cold sober and, you know, doesn't don't have mental illness, they'll react differently. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so my other catchphrase is no such thing as the escalation button. And that that first week there at Fugitive Unit, um, it was not my first negotiation. Right. It was not my first de-escalation incident. Um, it was kind of the first one on that level of that stage where I'm a member of the tactical team trying to take the guy down. I'm the new guy and everybody's standing by like, uh, what do we do? Like, okay, I will take this ball and I will run with it and we will make this happen. <laughs> um, and you know, and it turned out fine. You know, it turned out great. Um, got the guy in custody. Um, he is, still, I think he just went to trial, but I don't actually know what happened coming out of the trial. I didn't have to go. Um, but you know, it was, it was a different side that I want to be involved in. I'm very, very pleased that I've been able to since then. Well, and you mentioned talking about that you, you're, you're all about using words and mm -hmm. training and things like that. And so you teach the ABLE uh, class for, for Cruise Police Institute. Yes. Tell me more about that, what that is. Um, it's a relatively new class, mm -hmm. I believe. Tell it, me about yes. that. It, it's new to Dallas. Um, so ABLE is an acronym that stands for Active Bystandership for Law Enforcement. Um, it was uh, started by a guy named Irvin Staub, and he's a Holocaust survivor and a psychologist. 
Staub actually created a program on the heels of the Rodney King incident in the early 90s called EPIC, which stands for Ethical Policing is Courageous. Um, so I have to go back about 15 years uh, post Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans Police Department was investigated and they were found to have a pattern of practice of corruption and uh, excessive force with by the Justice Department. So they're under what's called a consent decree. Part of the training they brought into the police department was EPIC, Ethical Policing is Courageous. And it's kind of a de-escalation with your fellow officers in the moment. Um, but even more than that, there's there's very good tactics on to use with each other. One, we don't, we're not trying to make somebody lose face. And we're also not trying to embarrass anybody, but we are, what we're trying to do is we're trying to prevent harm, trying to prevent misconduct, reduce mistakes and promote officer health and wellness. And so um, that was started at, at New Orleans PD in the heels of the Katrina, um, at the Katrina uh, consent decree era. And after George Floyd happened uh, last summer, I think that law enforcement across the country saw that incident um, and they saw Chauvin's face on the video. And so there's four officers that were there on, in that incident. There was Chauvin, Tao Tao, and then I was, I mispronounced their names, I apologize, but there was Lang and King. Um, I don't know if it's Lane or Lang, and there was King or Koenig. Um, and the public at large saw that incident and said, hey, there's, there's these four guys, and you know, one of them's the instigator, right? But the other three aren't doing anything. And from the outside, I totally get it. I totally get how that looks. Here's the catch. Um, the two, Lang and King, the two officers that were on George Floyd's legs, they had five days combined law enforcement street experience. Five days combined. One in so three they were the, days. they were the rookiest of the rookies. They were babies, right? They, I mean, they were grown men, right? But in law enforcement, they were babies. Chauvin was a training officer for both of them. I'm very passionate about training as a field trainer for six years. Um, I helped redesign the field training program for DPD, all of our, all of our documentation, our grading scales, the process. Like I, I spent two years working on that and I was a trainer for six. I'm very passionate about field training. And when I learned that Lang and King only had five days on the street, it was a light bulb moment for me like, oh my God, I know exactly why this happened now, right? Um, and they did what was called probing. One, at one point, said something about, hey, I don't feel a pulse. And they said something about, hey, to roll him up on the side. And um, they probed Chauvin. But within a paramilitary organization, when you're dealing with seniority, when you're dealing with the difference in rank, one's a trainer, two of the trainees, um, it's really hard to make change when you are the junior officer, when you are the person being supervised, when you are the rookie. And I think uh, law enforcement across the country recognize that. So uh, the search was on, let's find a program where we can help empower these young officers when something's truly going on to, in order to uh, make a difference and change the trajectory of the incident. And that's ABLE. So um, I, was, I was asked by uh, one of our deputy chiefs, I'm sorry, Assistant Chief Shaw, she's a two-star chief. She called me in December and said, hey, we wanna do this training, would you go to it and would you would you vet it for me and tell me what you think? And I went to it and the content is is, is good. Um, you know, there's a healthy blend of academia, of practicality, of social science on why are we the way that we are. Um, this is not a human experience that is limited to just law enforcement when it comes to reluctance of step in um, when something's going on, right? If you're familiar with like a, you know, Kitty Genovese case, mm -hmm. Kitty Genovese in New York, uh, right? Somebody's getting murdered, a lot of people are aware of what's going on, and at least the perception for quite a while was that no one stepped in and helped. Now that was 
historically it was proven to be incorrect. But at least at the time, for a long time, it was taught as, you know, when it's everybody's job, nobody does anything because they don't feel empowered. Absolutely. I mean, that's why they talk about in the event of an emergency, it's pointing exactly at someone and saying, you call 911, as opposed exactly. to somebody call 911. Have you been in my class? Because I, <laughs> I use that. I use that. I taught it yesterday, and I use that every single time. I, I, I have it. not had the privilege of being in your class yet. Well, you should come by. It's a good I, time. I will come join time. you, like, yes. You get a long lunch, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's exactly right. Like, if you, if you make, um, you have a crowd of people, and you say, somebody do something to the crowd, everybody looks at each other and goes, what, are you going to do something? No, that's not my job. Um, so able is a, a set of practices and tactics, not only on why we need to do something, but also how to do that, right? How do we functionally do that as a peer, as supervisor, and as a subordinate to change the trajectory of the situation in order to prevent harm, reduce misconduct, and promote officer health and wellness? Because if you, if you have a healthy officer, right, if their life is dialed in, their personal life, you're going to have a lot more effective officer on the street. And a lot of times when we see issues on the street, it's a reflection of something that's actually going on at home. Well, like everybody else, we're afraid of having those hard conversations. Cops will run towards gunfire or into a burning building. But hey, let's talk to Joe over there, who's uh, been kind of chipping on calls lately, and you know we heard some rumors about him and his wife. Like, no, we're not going to talk to Joe. Right. Um, so I've been doing that uh, off and on. I, I, I we. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, I teach that several times a month now. I probably run four or five hundred officers through the training so far i mean we're three we're three thousand officers i'm not the only trainer i was just the first one to go through the course um and work with the command staff on making sure we roll that out trying to roll it out in the right way we don't want this to be training that is abstract or academic right we want this training to be delivered by real street cops who use it every day and um you know and it's been successful since then um the, we were we were in an incident in uh, february in my unit um we were taking down a gentleman. It was right when it got a very bad cold snap here in Dallas. We were taking down a gentleman. Um, he pulled a gun. He, he shot at us. He uh, hit the side of my Tahoe one time. In the second second round, he skylined and uh, missed my car. And uh, when we came out, fires turned at him, and he had uh, he had fallen basically across fallen across the hood of the car. He he fell on the ground. Gun flew out of his hand. No further force was used. Right, like we're totally fine. Well, in the aftermath of that, um, because he'd been shot at. So we got him in custody, right? Where nobody's, there's, there's, there's nothing untoward that occurred, right? We, we worked our tactic, we hit our spots, and we got him in custody. Well, after the fact, you have to do a battle damage assessment. You got to see if the person's injured. So I rip open his coat and I'm checking him for blood, and he gets whining about his coat. He's very upset that I ripped his coat open. Um, and both at that time and now, um, yeah, not really any regrets over ripping your coat open. I'm checking you for for bullet <laughs> holes, right? So let's let's prioritize here. So he gets a little whiny about his coat being ripped open. I still had a job, so I was still very focused on the procedure and what it was I was doing. And uh, the other officers that I was with, right, were, were upset, right? We just got shot at. That's 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 a hard part of your morning. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like that would really kind of ruin your day. You know, it... Um, I mean, it wakes you up faster than coffee, right? It definitely derails you. It, yes, the adrenaline definitely wakes you up. And it derails <laughs> the course that you thought your day was going to go, right? We're going to have a nice, easy day of surveillance. Not anymore, right? So the other officers I'm with, they, they're upset, very understandably. And um, one officer starts engaging with him, and, this, and he's my buddy, he's a great cop, right? And he starts engaging with him verbally, right? He's mad, right? He's mad. Somebody just tried to keep him from going home to his wife and children. Um, he starts engaging with the guy verbally and um, closing the distance, right? He starts walking towards him. Let's not find out how that movie ends, right? And that's what Abel teaches. Mm -hmm. So what's a simple way that we can change that situation? 
Give him a job to do. Hey, bro. Hey, the gun over there still on the ground. Do me a favor. Did you go stand next to that gun? I don't want it touched. I don't want it unloaded. I don't want it molested. I want it left exactly there. And that's your job. Go stand right there. And he knew exactly what was happening. He goes, okay, man, you, you got it, right? So he moves 10 feet away. He stands over the gun and it completely de-escalates the situation, right? So we have very justifiable human emotion, very justifiable human anger. Hey, this dude just shot at us, right? And by changing the situation just a little bit, we don't know how that movie could have ended otherwise, right? Um, and that's what Abel teaches. Very, very simple things that you can do. And, and since then, I, I was intervened on two weeks ago, right? Um, I violated a tactic. My adrenaline was amped. It was a very dangerous suspect. I got too close. Another officer stepped in, touched me on the shoulder, pulled me back online, right? Abel teaches a set of practices and tactics we can use in order to prevent harm and change the trajectory of situations to keep that headline from happening, keep that officer out of internal affairs, and keep a member of the public potentially from being injured. Well, and you're really known for for keeping your cool because if you're, I mean, back in 2016, mm -hmm. you were you were downtown on July 7th when that happened, and yes. there was a photo of you that went viral, keeping your cool while a woman was in your face yelling at you. Can you talk to me a little bit about about July 7th and and what what was um, going on for yeah, you? Yeah. So if people aren't familiar, July 7th, uh, 2016, here in Dallas, we had a, an individual. Um, it was at the end of a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest. Um, we had an individual who was not a part of the protest. Um, and he was a self-radicalized uh, black militant. And he attacked the protest, specifically wanting to um, kill officers. He shot 14 officers total. Um, and he, unfortunately, uh, five of them died. Um, they passed away in the line of duty. Um, I responded to that. I was working that night. Um, and I responded and got there um, not too long after the suspect had been suppressed into El Central College. Um, and through a series of events, uh, we had multiple other reports. It was very confusing, multiple other reports of shooters and snipers on the roofs and shootings in other locations. And uh, I ended up trying to push to contact for a significant period of time to try to just find the place where I could be the, do the most good. And through a series of events, I ended up in the last place I wanted to be, which was on outer perimeter. I was not where I wanted to be, right? The, so the guys that were the heroes that night, like the guys that were inside El Central College, um, their pictures weren't taken. So I'm a guy who was standing in the middle of the street, and I had an angry crowd in front of me, and uh, we had actually made an arrest. There was a, a gentleman who was, uh, he was armed, he was wearing body armor and a gas mask, and uh, so we detained him. Because um, we didn't know if he was involved in the actual shooting, he was kind of hiding in the crowd, and so we'd gone in the crowd, got him out, got him, got him tamed. He was in handcuffs. We disarmed him, and the crowd was very agitated about the fact that we had uh, detained someone, and uh, his presence was causing their agitation to increase. So we needed to get him out of there. We we wanted to remove him from that situation, bring him to a safe space so we could debrief him, see if he was involved. Um, he, did, he ended up not being involved with that. He did go to jail for um, other criminal charges, but he was not actually involved in the attack. But we needed to get him out of there. So we move in to clear out the street. And uh, there, was a, there was a woman there, and uh, she was very upset uh, about what had happened. She was, this was after the shootings had happened. Um, she was extremely nasty with her countenance and her words. She was saying very hateful and hurtful things. Um, you know, the kind of things like if you if you stop and think about it, you can still hear them ringing in your ears. 
And um, because of some training I'd gone through and some uh, prior experiences, I was very focused, trying to stay very focused on the moment, engage in mindfulness practices of like, okay, what's my job right now? My job is to clear the street. My job is not to pay attention to this woman. My job is not to listen to what she's saying or take it to heart. My job is to clear the streets so we can get this guy out of here and so we can restore calm and order. Um, and so I just basically just waited in the crowd. I wasn't alone. Um, there was a bunch of other officers there. I waited in the crowd and I just used my presence to get her to step back. Um, I didn't really verbally engage with her, but I was very focused in that moment on my breath. And I was very focused on keeping my face calm. Um, something called the facial feedback effect. So if you keep your face calm, it will help you stay calm. And it actually works, right? Like if you're in a bad mood and you want to cheer up, if you start smiling, you're going to feel like an idiot for about five minutes, but you're going to feel better after a little bit. You're going to start, you're going to start feeling better. Um, so the way that our bodies and our brains interact, I was trying very hard to stay calm, keep my face calm, keep my cool, keep my composure, and let all of the angst, consternation, adrenaline, everything was flowing through me, all the burning anger, just, okay, it's still there. It's okay, you're human. Now it's not time to focus on that. Now it's time to focus on the present and let's count our breaths. Um, and so we, it was just a snapshot in time. That picture was just a snapshot in time. Uh, so it just depicts me calmly dealing with her. Her phone is right in my face. And her face is very angry. Um, you know, I, I don't I'm, I don't know if she's seen the photo or not. It went very, very, very viral after the incident. Um, it was attached to several different social media posts. It was in the news. It's become stock photo. It's been used in training. And uh, somebody, somebody went to some national training um, in another state. And my photo was being used as the headline, like, to depict what it was they were trying to train, uh, which is crazy to me. It's in the <laughs> National Law Enforcement uh, Museum in Washington, D.C., um, I haven't seen it, but somebody saw it, sent me a picture of it. <laughs> and, you know, it, I think that it's a snapshot in time that just shows like, hey, here's an officer being calm. There was so much that went into that with graduate school and a prior shooting incident I'd been in, um, other de-escalation training I'd been through, mindfulness, meditation, a really bad back injury that I had been through where I had to learn how to stay calm through immense pain. There was so much that went into making that photo happen. And, but to me, it's just, it's a snapshot on one of the worst, if not the worst nights of my entire life. And I ended up, um, unfortunately famous for it for a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so it was, it was a very hard night, um, very hard night. And, uh, that's what happened with that. Yeah. But you've also gone viral again. I have gone viral. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so you sent a letter to Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. Yes, I did. Uh, tell, tell me about that. Tell me how you went viral on that. So um, I'm a Seahawks fan. I, I grew up. Not a there. Cowboys fan? I'm not a Cowboys fan, and I'm not sorry about it. <laughs> I mean, we'll just end the interview right now. Okay. No, so, yeah, no, well, thanks for the free coffee. Thanks so you much. Validated it's good my talk. On the way out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not uh, validating now. Yeah. Um, but but tell, tell me about it, the, the letter to Russell and the, and the Seahawks. So I, I am a Seahawks fan. Uh, I grew, That's where I grew up, and they went to the Super Bowl first time my sophomore year of college. So um, 2016, it's shortly after the July 7th incident, and um, this is when kneeling for the flag was, was, was starting. It was becoming a big deal. And kind of whatever your opinion on kneeling the flag, uh, kneeling for the flag, um, the start of the national anthem, uh, whatever your opinion on it, I wrote a letter to Russell Wilson specifically. He's my favorite athlete. Um, so my last name is Russell. 
His name is Russell. I have a hashtag. Russell Wilson is my boy, right? Uh, <laughs> he's my favorite athlete. And I wrote him an open letter on social media asking him to lead the team to not kneel specifically on their home opener that year. The home opener was on September 11th. Mm. And so specifically asking, it's the 15-year anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Please don't kneel for the flag here in this moment of what needs to be national unity and national pride. And all the differences that we have in this country can we set it aside for one moment and come together over the glory of American football and the best parts of America represented in our flag? Lead your team and stand. This and, is not a moment for division. So they did stand. Um, I did not actually get a response from Russell Wilson. But you'd like to think it was definitely um, because of it was right? for sure. It was my doing, right? Absolutely, totally me. Uh, so they did it. They did stand. Yes. What they did was they because um, it was it was a moment of national conversation on is kneeling for the flag of the national anthem appropriate or not. Uh, what he did was he led the team onto the field linked arm in arm. So they came on the field. They were linked in arm in arm, but they did stand for the flag, which was that was the the gist of my request. Um, I wrote him a thank you letter, which then we got another, I don't know, like 10, 15,000 shares or something, right? <laughs> but not near as viral, not near as big. Um, and so I, I, you know, I did a little foray into social media activism afterwards. Um, I got hooked up with a, a Facebook organization. Um, I'm not going to name them because um, I left not too long after. So I wasn't happy with what I was seeing behind the scenes when publicly it seemed like, hey, these people that really mean well. And behind the scenes, I was going, oh, there's... There's some stuff going on here I'm not really not real comfortable with. I don't want to attach my name to. Um, and I tried to I tried to go back to being private on social media. Uh, that didn't really work out too well. Um, and I had this unfortunate tendency to still write things that would end up going that would end up going viral. So I've been viral a few more times since then. Um, I've since I left Facebook this year uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly mostly personal. Um, I left Facebook this earlier this year so that I could live my life a little less, a uh, little less visibly, a little less publicly, and just maintain a presence that's very focused on um, friends and family. And I initially, I left just for a short period of time because I had some stuff going on and I just wanted to tr- kind of turn the volume down on the world. And you know, low volume is really nice. So 2016 was a challenging year for, for a lot of folks, particularly here in Dallas. But in 2016, you definitely kind of found a silver lining because your wife started a therapy dog group to, for, yes. with you all here in, in Dallas. Yes. Um, so we have a therapy dog group called uh, Breezy's Bowties. We are on Facebook with that um, and Instagram. Um, and Instagram, it's a bowtie Breezy. Um, <laughs> well, who's Breezy? So Breezy is our, he's our golden retriever. His name is Brisbane. And uh, so Brisbane, the Brisbane was the realization of a whispered late night phone conversation in 2006 when my wife and I were dating. She was studying abroad in Australia. And uh, I asked her, you know, we kind of had this conversation about like, what, you know, what are we going to do if we ever actually make this crazy relationship work? Because you're in Australia and I'm in Washington and you live in Texas and all this craziness. And we decided we're going to get a golden retriever. And she wanted a boy. Okay. What do we want to name him? And she didn't know. And I said, well, what's the fa- your favorite place you've been to in Australia? And she said, Brisbane. So that's what we're going to name it. So that was the summer of 2006. We got married in 2012. We got Brisbane a month before we got married. So he could be a, he was a puppy in our wedding. <laughs> and uh, so my wife, very early on, she wanted to train him to be a therapy dog. Uh, so he's, he is a certified therapy dog for Therapy Dogs International. It took a number of years for us to be able to realize that goal. Life and graduate school and all that just got in the way. Um, but we got him certified 
And um, so since then, since uh, about 2016, and then we got, we picked up more heavily in 2017, 18, 19, and then we slowed down a lot for the pandemic and it hasn't really picked back up. Uh, we were doing very consistent deployments with Brisbane and we assembled a, a crew, uh, a team of other local therapy dog volunteers. And so our focus primarily has been on responding to critical incidents at uh, police departments, going to police substations, line of duty funerals. There was a, like there, for instance, there was a Fort Worth police officer who was killed in line of duty um, a couple of years ago. And we were in the hospital, like we, we showed up at the hospital, we brought our dogs and we were in the hospital there at the moment that his uh, unfortunate passing was announced. Um, a, a teammate of mine that I was a police officer with at Northeast Substation, Rothelio in Santander, uh, he was murdered uh, April 24th, 2018. We had therapy dogs at the hospital um, that afternoon before he had uh, passed away. And um, in addition to doing police deployments, uh, we've done you know, some, some special events. And uh, one of our focuses now is the Dallas Zoo, uh, which is a really great relationship we have with them where you know the zookeepers, they get very attached to their animals. And animals live and animals unfortunately pass away, sometimes suddenly, sometimes with long illnesses, sometimes from old age. Death is not always tragic, but it is always sad. And so we're, we're very fortunate to have a, a relationship with the Dallas Zoo where we deploy therapy dogs there um, on an as-needed basis to help the zookeepers when they're struggling with the passing or an illness of an animal. What a cool thing that you all are doing and really helping people like that. So so you, you've been with the department now almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? Um, probably the Sarge's test. I've put off promoting for 10 years. I've skipped, I've skipped promoting. Uh, because I wanted to, to continue with some of the projects I was doing. I was very passionate about the FTO program. I wanted to make that happen. I really wanted to be a fugitive detective. I wanted to build a negotiating program. I wanted to teach more. Uh, but it's, it's kind of time, I think. So um, at some point, Chief's going to uh, announce a sergeant's test. And so I will probably take the sergeant's, take the sergeant's test and promote when that is available. And uh, yeah, keep serving. Keep doing what I can do to keep trying to make the world a little bit better place. One bad guy off the street at a time or one officer trained to be a little more calm and a little bit better to use the most important six inches on the street, which is the space between your ears. Um, and that's my goal. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for, for protecting and serving for us. And so at, at the end of all of our interviews, we, we I've got to turn it back over to Dickie's. So I've mm -hmm. got to ask favorite Dickie's meat, favorite Dickie's side. Um, favorites. Okay. So the favorite side was macaroni and cheese. Was. Was. I had an unfortunate occurrence in 2019 and my pancreas gave me a little figure. I am now adult type one diabetic. Oh. So I can't eat macaroni and cheese anymore. Oh, I'm so but sorry. man, if I could, it'd be macaroni and cheese. Um, and favorite <laughs> meat's gotta be brisket. Right? Okay. So it's definitely gotta be brisket. All right. So we, we always finish up with a lightning round. I'm going to give you two choices and you're going to pick your favorite. Okay. All right. We'll start with an easy one. Barbecue beans or jalapeno beans? Barbecue beans. Sweet or unsweet tea? Unsweet tea. Chopped brisket or sliced brisket? Sliced brisket. Sauce or no sauce? Sauce. A lot of sauce? A decent amount of sauce. Okay. Uh, brisket or pulled pork? Ooh, if it's a sandwich, pulled pork. But if it's just the meat, brisket. <laughs> I like that. You're kind of splitting it there. Yeah. And last but not least, ribs or wings? Wings. Wings, all right. You know, and it's football season. Mm -hmm. All about those wings as you cheer on your Seattle Seahawks. We'll have some Seahawk wings for you. There you go. Uh, but yes, y'all, thank you so much, Dan Russell. My guest today has been Detective Dan Russell with the Dallas Police Department. Thank you so much for everything you do and for uh, taking those bad guys off the street one at a time. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks so much for tuning in this week. It was great that we could share our stories with you. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickies.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community. Thank you.